Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I remember having a moment very early in the research for the book. I went to interview a guy called Professor Roy Baumeister, who's at the University of Queensland in Australia. And he's the leading expert in the world on willpower. He wrote a book called Willpower. I'm sure everyone's heard of the marshmallow test. He's the guy who invented that. So I go to interview him and I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a book about why people have got attention problems, trying to figure it out. And he said, oh, it's really interesting you say that because I just find myself these days just playing games on my phone all the time. I just find, you know, my own attention isn't very good. And I say, I was like, wait, didn't you write a book called Willpower? I was like, Are, if aren't you the you strongest willed problem, person in the world? <laughs> even if you can know literally all the scientific evidence about willpower, but if you're in an environment that invades you, you're not going to be able, you can defend yourself to some degree. And I realized the shift in consciousness I think we have to make on this issue, and there's a shift in consciousness on the other 11 issues as well, but on this issue, if you can't focus, if you can't pay attention, it's not your fault. There's not something wrong with you. There's not something wrong with your children. We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can reclaim them from the forces that are systematically degrading them if we want to. But we have to understand this as a systemic problem that requires systemic solutions, as well as to some degree an individual problem that we have to deal with individually. We have to do both. This week on Forward, the author of Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How You Can Think More Deeply, Johan Hari. Love this book. Love this author. This week on Forward. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the author of Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How You Can Think More Deeply, which we all want to do, Johan Hari. <laughs> welcome, Johan. Andrew, I'm so happy to be with you, especially because you make a cameo appearance in this book. So it's no. uh, slightly surreal and dreamlike that I'm talking to you, so I'm very happy. And I've admired oh. your work for a long time, so I'm really, especially the work you've done on UBI, which also appears in this book and appeared in my last book. So I'm very, very excited to talk to you. Well, you're a bit of a futurist, my friend, but in, in this case, <laughs> you're a presentist in the sense that you're arguing about a problem that I think most people feel very significantly, which is that our attention is eroding. We're kind of losing our minds. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and, I have turned on the news in the last five years. <laughs> You're totally right. You're totally right. Yeah, well, the, the media landscape is one thing. But what I love about this book is that you think much more deeply where you have 12 causes as to why our attention is collapsing. But but first, let's describe the problem a bit. And you share some deeply personal stories about yourself, people in your family. Like, we all have these stories. Heck, well, might as well. I mean, I, I will share, share my own Brilliant. version of this. And it's very tough for me, Johan, because... In my case, I'm something of a public figure trying to get things done. So I can convince myself that Twitter is my job <laughs> or, 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 or that, or, or that social, social media is like, oh, like I'm really doing something important if I uh, like post this right now. Um, so uh, I'll tell you my, my personal nightmare, which I live many days, unfortunately, uh, which is I'm a parent like you are. And my nine-year-old and six-year-old first themselves are addicted to screens, but worse yet, when I'm around them, I often wander off and check my phone um, instead of focusing on them. And so then when I see them uh, go to their screens, it's more difficult for me to say, hey, don't do that because they see daddy doing it all the time. Um, so, th so that's my particular version uh, of this. Um, and I know different people have different experiences with it, but how did you come to decide to commit an entire book, which is a very, very significant commitment to, to this problem. No, you're uh, so interesting what you're saying, Andrew, and I can't tell you how many people I know who are having the same experience as you. And I wrote the book because I could feel my own attention was getting significantly worse. It felt like every year that passed, things that require deep focus, like reading a book, watching long films, things that are very deep to my sense of myself, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. Do you know what I mean? I could do it, but it was getting harder and harder. <laughs> but, to, but, but to be honest, and, and I would blame myself. I thought, oh, your willpower isn't strong enough. You're just not good enough. And, I, and to be honest, I just put off thinking about it. And there was a moment in my life, which is sort of in a way a little bit further down the line in childhood than the experience you're having with your kids, but not so much further, that made me think, I, okay, I need to investigate the science of this. I need to use my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to investigate this. And I've got a godson. I call him Adam in the book. It's not his real name because I didn't want to you know, out him. But um, when he was nine, he developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis. I never understood where it came from, but it was unbelievably cute. He would run around singing, you know, Viva Las Vegas and Suspicious Minds. And he didn't know this had become like a cheesy cliche. So it was especially cute. And when I would tuck him in at night, he always got me to tell him the story of Elvis's life. I tried to skip over the bit at the end where he like shits himself to death on the toilet. But, um, and, and, and one, one night when I was tucking him in, he looked at me very intensely and he said, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I said, yeah, sure. In the way that you do with like nine-year-olds knowing next week they're gonna wanna go somewhere else and somewhere else. And he said to me, no, do you really promise? Will you one day, will you take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise. And it never crossed my mind again until 10 years later when everything had gone wrong. So he dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, he just seemed to spend his entire life alternating between his iPad, his laptop and his phone. His life was just passing in this blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, TikTok, porn. And it was like his mind was sort of whirring at the speed of Snapchat where nothing still or serious could touch him and he was uh, he was and is a lovely person but we were sitting you can't see from the angle wrap but I was sitting on the sofa just behind my laptop there and I was trying to talk to him all day and all day he was just in this sort of fragmented state 
And I was kind of disgusted with myself, exactly like you're saying with your kids, because I was looking at my own phone the whole time. And then I suddenly remembered this moment all those years before. And I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, what? He didn't even remember this, this childhood obsession. Wait, wait, so, so, so 10 years later, did he still have a fondness for Elvis? <laughs> I mean, only to the degree that everyone does, right? The, the, no, I don't, th I don't think he even, no, not particularly. But I was like, the reason was I wanted to do something that would break this like numbing routine, right? And I said to him, and he was, I could see that it awakened something. And we hadn't been out of the country in a while. Um, and, and I said to him, okay, I'll take you. We'll go all over the South, but on one condition, you've got a promise that you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day right? Because we can't just go around looking at Snapchat the whole time. And he absolutely solemnly swore, and I believe he meant it. And two weeks later, we landed in New Orleans and we, and we went around south and then we got to Memphis. And um, have you have you been to Graceland, Andrew? I have not been to Graceland. I have been in that part of the country, though, but Gra Graceland has yeah. eluded me. <laughs> you, uh, so far, this is going to inspire you, maybe. Uh, so when you arrive at the gates of Graceland now, this is even before COVID, there's no guide to show you around. What happens is they, they hand you an iPad, and you put in earbuds and the iPad guides you around. So it says go left, go right, go straight ahead, whatever it might be. Um, and in every room you're in, you get a digital representation of that room on the iPad and it tells you about it. So what happens is everyone walks around Graceland just staring at their iPad, right? And I, and so we're sort of walking around half an hour and I'm getting more and more tense. And I'm trying to make eye contact with someone to go, oh, this is funny. We're the people who travel thousands of miles and actually looked at the place we traveled to, but the only people I could ever make eye contact with were people who'd looked away from the iPad to take out their phones and take selfies. So it's getting more, more and more tense. And finally we got to the jungle room, which is Elvis's favorite room in Graceland, was obviously. And there was a Canadian couple next to us. And the man turned to his wife and said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I thought he was joking, so I laughed. And then I realized him, him and his wife were just swiping back and forth. And I, I turned to him and I said, oh, but sir, there's, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do called turning your head. Because look, we're actually in the jungle room. You don't have to look at a digital representation. We're, we're actually there. And this couple just backed away thinking I was crazy. And I turned to my godson to go like, oh, God, did you catch that? And he was in the corner looking at Snapchat because from the moment we landed, he just could not do it. And I felt so angry and I went up to him and I, I did that thing that you're going to be doing with your kids soon, which is try to snatch the phone out of his hands. And I said, you know, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you miss out. You're not showing up to your own life. Look at all these people. They're not present at their own lives. And he stomped off, understandably, past Elvis's grave out, out, out of Graceland. And... I just stopped, I just wandered around on my own for a while and I found him that night in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying. It's just across the street and down a bit. And he was by the swimming pool and he was looking at his phone. I went up to him and I apologized. And he didn't look away from his phone, but he said, I know something is really wrong, but I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, you know what? I've got, I've got to look into this. So I ended up over the next three years, going on a really long journey all over the world, from Miami to Melbourne to Moscow. I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus. And I learned that there's 12 factors, like you say, Andrew, that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. And loads of the factors that make your attention worse are hugely increasing at the moment. Um, and, and the key lesson I learned is your attention did not collapse. 
your attention has been stolen from you by these big and powerful forces, so with, so of your children's. And we've got to deal with this in two ways. We've got to protect ourselves and our kids at an individual level, and we've got to take on the forces that are stealing our focus and attention. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. You know, one of the things you cite, I think it was the... Uh, rise of cruel optimism <laughs> where where you uh think that's like oh this is my fault like i'm a bad parent i'm a bad person i'm weak-willed um when you realize that our consciousness is being strip mined by billion and trillion dollar companies uh not just in tech but we'll, we'll start with tech and something that tristan harris said to me uh that and you you know you know tristan he said that uh, it's like if a whale is worth more dead than alive if a piece of lumber is worth more in a piece of furniture than just sitting as a tree in nature uh, we kind of know what's going to happen to the whale and the tree uh, and right now we are worth more distracted upset animated engaged outraged angry and so that's what we're going to be uh, because that's where the market forces take us. Um, so uh, I, I'd love to inventory uh, some of these 12 reasons, but I guess we'll start with the big daddy, which you devote <laughs> at least a couple of chapters to and, and what Tristan is focused on and what I think many of us feel acutely, which is uh, smartphones, social media, Snapchat, uh, the kind of apps that your godson's addicted to. Yeah, I think Tristan is one of the great heroes of our time. I really, I just been to him the night about this. I think he's a really remarkable person, and people who don't know his work, I really recommend they 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 look him up and, and listen deeply to him. No, you're totally right because I was locked for a really long time in thinking of this as a personal failure. Basically, I, if you'd asked me when I started doing the research for this five years ago, why why is attention getting worse? I would why is your attention getting worse? I would have said, well, basically, I'm weak. And my phone came along and invaded me. And I learned that actually uh, that's way too simplistic a way of thinking about it. But because I was locked in that initial mode, 
the first thing I did for the book is I spent three months completely off the internet. Which, which by the way, I envied when you described your writing retreat. <laughs> anyway, when I was like, oh my gosh, like who it wouldn't was, want to do that? It was, you know, it was an incredible, there were some real lows and some real crashes where I desperately craved the rewards of social media. But what amazed me about that experience is how much my mind came back. Because I thought, you know, I'm nearly 43. I thought, okay, you get older, your brain deteriorates, you mistake your own deterioration with the world. We're well past our intellectual primes, Johan. We're just going to be churning out second rate Just accept the slow descent into senility. But actually, my attention went back to what it had been when I was 17. I could sit and read a book for eight hours a day and focus deeply. Now, there are lots of changes that happened to me when I was in Provincetown away from the internet that I realized caused that. It wasn't just the absence of social media, and I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of the others. But... At the end of my time in Provincetown, I was like, I'm never going to go back to that way of living. My God, why why would I ever go back to that? And I got my phone back and within two months, I didn't ever go back to being as bad as I'd been before. But within two months, I was basically 80% back to where I'd been, right? And I only understood why when I went to interview James Williams, Dr. James Williams, incredible um, person who was a former senior strategist at Google horrified by what they were doing to people, was being hijacked by his own creations, quit and became one of the world's leading experts on attention. And James said to me, you've made a fundamental mistake here in Provincetown. Although it was great, I'm sure it was great, he said. Um, You've acted like the solution to air pollution is for you personally to wear a gas mask. And look, I'm not against gas masks. If I lived in Beijing, I'd wear a gas mask. There's a place for individual relief. It has real value. But he said, we've got to tackle this problem at the source. We've got to deal with the reasons why our attention is being invaded. Because at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day. And then they're leaning forward and going, you know, buddy, uh, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. To which the obvious response is, yeah, I'll learn to meditate. That's all very good. And I'm in favor of it. But you need to stop pouring itching powder on me. So but I'm making to... money pouring itching powder on you, Johan. Exactly. I'm this making billions of dollars <laughs> pouring itching powder on you. Exactly. It becomes how, more like a how are, sore analogy. How are you going to stop? Movie. How are you going to stop me? Sensible regulation? Pshaw. <laughs> <laughs> you really did sound like a Batman villain there. I was very impressed. And um, what well, it was so interesting because obviously there's two levels at which you've got to tackle this. Like I said before, there. Are, in my book, Stolen Focus, I go through loads of things we can do as individuals. And, and I want to be honest, I'm strongly in favor of individual action at a personal level. It can really help. But we've got a level with people that will only get you so far. And in, in an environment that is, prof- the way Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention in the world, said to me, we live in what he called an attentional pathogenic environment, one that is systematically degrading everyone's ability to pay attention. Professor Barbara de Menis, one of the leading scientists in France, she's won the Légion d'honneur, their biggest civilian award, said to me, it is not possible to have a normal brain today. So if we want to think about, you've gone to exactly the right point, Andrew, you've gone to the heart of the issue because you're obviously so well informed about this, which is the business model, the business incentives. So there was a moment with this, obviously I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley talking to many dissidents whom a lot of people will have heard of, uh, like Tristan, who's such a remarkable person. I, well, I, I will say I disagree with Tristan on some of this stuff because I have said to Tristan, I was like, hey, Tristan, all the stuff you're talking about, 
is is not going to work because they're making billions of dollars pouring itching powder on us. And uh, the the only way to counteract it is to uh, put a spike in these incentives, like a you know like a stake in the heart of the the beast. Uh, so one of the things I recommend in my book is look require everyone to move to a non ad supported uh, business model. Um, and my idea for that was just for the government just to to say everyone gets a twenty buck a month stipend that will you can then use to transition to ad supported. Oh, sorry, not ad free versions of all your favorite social media companies. And then the incentives would become more sane. Uh, but I, I just wanted to to let you know, it's like I love Tristan. I admire him a lot. He and I have talked about this and I think he's too benign. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I think he's moving. <laughs> I totally I agree with you. I think he's moving in your direction. And uh, he, he, I think he's 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 someone you know, it's so interesting because if you look at a lot of these people who are accused of being Cassandras in Silicon Valley, they're so far from being Cassandras. They're reasonable, pragmatic people who just want to solve a problem. And 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 there was a moment with Tristan and various other people where exactly that point you're making fell into place for me. So Tristan said to me, you open Facebook and it'll tell you lots of things, right? It'll tell you whose birthday it is. It'll tell you what you said on that same day 10 years ago. It'll tell you who, you know, who tagged you in a post. We all know the list, right? There's one thing it doesn't have. There's no button that says something like, I'd like to meet up with my friends. Have any of my other friends indicated they'd like to meet up, right? Doesn't exist. Now, the minute I say that, everyone who's on Facebook thinks, well, that'd be a really useful app, right? I'd like to, you know, get, get to a Friday night. Who wants to meet up? There's, there's no obvious mechanism to figure that out using Facebook. It'd be hugely popular with its users. So why, does, why doesn't the market provide it? And the answer is very obvious. I know you know it really well, Andrew. Every time you open Facebook, they make money in two ways. Obviously, you see ads, but more importantly, they harvest all the information you provide to build up a profile of you to sell it to advertisers. They're commodifying your attention and selling it to the highest bidder. This is crucial to the attention debate because as Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook said, we designed it to maximally invade people's attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids. This is now, I'm sure, a familiar debate to, to all of your listeners. Um, but I think if you, it, it, what's so important is when you understand those incentives, you can see why, for example, there's no button that says, let's meet up. Because, of course, then you would go and meet up with your friend. You would look into his face. That, he would that, that'd be more. two hours off of Facebook. Exactly. Guaranteed. Exactly. All of the interaction they want is through their app. And of course, that's only going to become more and more extreme as they move towards the metaverse and the other sort of slightly distant. It's funny. There's a guy called Jaron Lanier, who I think you probably know. Who yeah, yeah. He's tech- been on the pod. Jaron uh, Lanier is amazing a guru, a genius. Yeah. Great, a, a complete guru, like almost literally a guru, I think. But he he said to me, you know, he used to be a consultant on loads of dystopian movies like Minority Report, but he stopped doing it because what he would do is he would design some horrific technology that was his idea of a nightmare. And then loads of people would watch it, a technologist, and go, that's a great idea. How do we make that? And he was like, no, no, this is not what I wanted. So you're absolutely right. When you tease out the implications of social media, um, there's an, a historical analogy that I think really helps us to understand what you're proposing. Um, so you, you'll just about remember this, Andrew. I vaguely remember it from my childhood. It used to be perfectly normal, in fact, the standard, for people to use leaded petrol in their cars, leaded gasoline in their cars, and for people to paint their homes with leaded paint. And it was known 
going way back to ancient Rome, that exposure to lead really harms your brain. In fact, scientists by the 1920s were warning that leaded gasoline would cause a disaster for people's brains, but the lead industry funded an enormous machinery of lies and denial, fake science, we all know that model from the climate crisis, to deny it and deny it and deny it. But by the time you got to the late 1970s, the early 1980s, the evidence that exposure to lead was damaging children's brains, and particularly their ability to focus and pay attention, was absolutely overwhelming. And so what did we do? We didn't ban lead, we didn't ban paint. Uh, you know, you can see my apartment is painted, right? I can see yours is. I can see cars going past. Yeah, we just switched to unleaded gasoline and exactly. lead-free paint. We dealt with the specific element. And this to me is, is so important because the way they the way the tech industry wants to frame people like you and me and Tristan is they want this debate to be framed as pro-tech or anti-tech, right? And if it's framed like that, firstly, it's not true. But secondly, it just induces fatalism in people. because They're like, well, I'm not going to join the Amish. I'm not going to give up my devices. So I guess we just have to be pro-tech. The question is not, are you pro-tech or anti-tech? The question is, what tech working in whose interests? With what effects? And so we can have, just like we have all the benefits of paint, but not lead paint, we can have the benefits of social media without them being designed maximally to hack our attention. It's exactly the shift you suggest. Asa Raskin, who I think you probably also know, invented a key part of how the internet works. His dad, Jeff Raskin, invented the Apple Mac for, for Steve Jobs. He said to me, look, step one of the solution is really simple. You've got to ban the current business model, just like we do not allow lead in yes. You just say, you are not allowed to have a business model that is based on identifying the weaknesses in people's attention, hacking them, and selling their attention to the highest bidder. You just forbid it. And I remember, because I was at an earliest, I was I knew much less about this debate then than you do now. I said to Aza and lots of the other people who proposed this, okay, but let's say we do that. What happens the next day when I open Facebook or Twitter and does it just say, sorry, we've gone fishing? And he said, of course not. What would happen is they would move to an alternative business model. I love your way of incentivizing it. But the key thing to understand about the alternative business models is, is why that leads to a different effect on your attention. So let's think about two possible alternative business models that everyone listening has had experience with. The first is subscription. We all know how Netflix yep. pays that amount. Love it. The second, the second is your apartment, my apartment, is connected to the sewage systems. Before we had sewers, we had you know feces in the street, we had outbreaks of cholera. So all of us together pay to build the sewers and maintain the sewers. You own the sewers of New York City. I own the sewers of Las Vegas and London, places where I live, right? Um, you, you Wait, wait, you live in Vegas? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, I a lot of time in Vegas. It's because of a book I'm writing. It's a long story. I'll tell you another time. Uh, but the, but the, <laughs> and it's an amazing place. Um, but the, the, it may be that just like we own the sewage pipes together, we want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the attentional equivalent of cholera. And the key thing is, once we move to this different business model, exactly like you say, Andrew, all the incentives change. At the yes. moment, every incentive for these machines, for, sorry, for the people who currently run the social media companies, doesn't matter if they're nice people or horrible people. Yes. All of their incentives are one thing. How do I get Andrew to pick up his phone more and scroll more? And how do I get Andrew's kids to pick up his phone more and scroll more? That's it. Just the same way the, the head of KFC, all he cares about is, did Andrew eat any KFC today? That's it. That's all he cares about, right? Doesn't matter if he's nice or nasty. But the whole thing at the moment is designed 
to maximally invade your attention. Now, of course, there's a degree to which when these technologies were invented, they would have had some effect on our attention anyway. And I can talk about some of the ways they do and what we can do about that. But they have been designed to maximally invade our attention. They can just as easily be designed to maximally heal our attention. Once you're the customer in this different business model and not the product, Facebook can start to ask itself, well, what does Andrew want? Well, Andrew wants to meet up with his friends. Let's give him a button to meet up with his friends. Yep. Oh, it could Andrew actually become a life enhancement instead of an exactly. attention degrader. Exactly. And for all of the 12 causes of uh, attention problems that I write about in, in Stolen Focus, that all of them but one, there's, there's two levels like this. There's lots of stuff we can do to protect ourselves, and we can talk about that as individuals. But we've got to take on these forces in the same way that the lead industry was never going to just give up putting lead in paint and petrol, right? They had to no, be I'm, 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 to do it. I'm sure they just woke up and had a crisis of conscience, Johan. Come on. <laughs> I mean, the, it, it, it's hard to they think. They said, we're tired of making money. <laughs> exactly. We've made exactly. enough. And we, <laughs> exactly. we've done enough. Let's have a good life in our house made of lead where we go slowly <laughs> insane and our children can't think or speak anymore. Um, the, exactly. And I think this requires a, it was one of the things that I had to do in my own mind as I was working on the book is really shift consciousness on this. Because for a long time, I thought of this as a failure of willpower, right? And actually I had a real, really interesting- That's very American of you, Johan. It's like, you know, rugged individualism. Like what? Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I spent way too much time in the United States. So I was like, God damn it, it's on me, right? And I remember having a moment very early in the research for the book. I went to interview a guy called Professor Roy Baumeister, who's at the University of Queensland in Australia. And he's the leading expert in the world on willpower. He wrote a book called Willpower. I'm sure everyone's heard of the marshmallow test. He's the guy who invented that. So I go to interview him and I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a book about why people have got attention problems, trying to figure it out. And he said, oh, it's really interesting you say that because I just find myself these days just playing games on my phone all the time. I just find, you know, my own attention isn't very good. And I was saying, I was like, wait, didn't you write a book called Willpower? I was like, Are, aren't you the you strongest willed person in the world? <laughs> even if you can know literally all the scientific evidence about willpower, but if you're in an environment that invades you, you're not going to be able, you can defend yourself to some degree. And I realized the shift in consciousness I think we have to make on this issue, and there's a shift in consciousness on the other 11 issues as well, but on this issue, if you can't focus, if you can't pay attention, it's not your fault. There's not something wrong with you. There's not something wrong with your children. We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can reclaim them from the forces that are systematically degrading them if we want to. But we have to understand this as a systemic problem that requires systemic solutions, as well as to some degree an individual problem that we have to deal with individually. We have to do both. And just like they're needed, and obviously still needs to be a feminist movement to reclaim women's bodies and their lives, I would argue we need an attention movement to take on these big forces that are degrading our ability to think they've created what Professor Earl Miller, one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, calls a perfect storm of cognitive degradation. We've got to take on these forces, not least because, and you know this much better than I do, Andrew, these forces are only going to become more invasive if we don't act. It's like we're in a race. So to one side, let's think about this one of the 12 causes, not the biggest cause, by the way, affecting our attention, which we might get to, but think about this cause. On the one side, 
Think about Paul Graham, one of the leading investors in Silicon Valley, who said, the world is on course to be much more addictive in the next 40 years than the last 40 years. Think about how much more compelling to your child TikTok is than Facebook, right? We imagine that level of invasiveness. The, 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 the problem with TikTok videos is they're a little bit too long. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my idea is a new app called Tick. <laughs> and the and the maximum length of a video, two point five seconds. And then sufficient. tick will be, and then I will launch a rival called T, which will be like, <laughs> oh, oh no, you're gonna, gonna beat me. A second, exactly. So if you think of it as a race, right? You, on the one side, you've got this increasingly invasive technology. What we've got to have on the other side is a movement of ordinary people saying no. You don't get to do this to us. You don't get to do this to our children. And of course, that movement's begun. People like Tristan, the Center for Humane Technology, which everyone should sign up to. And there's a, I go through at the back of the book, just a huge range of organizations that are fighting on the different dimensions of this issue. But we've got to take on these forces. Because if we don't, my worry is that this could be like the obesity crisis or the climate crisis, which is the harder, the further in you get, the harder it is to get back. And this relates to a, a deeper thing about attention. Everyone listening or watching, if you just think about anything you've ever achieved in your life, you know, whether it's setting up a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it might be, that thing that you're proud of took a huge amount of sustained attention and focus. And attention and focus are now breaking down. The average office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. For every one child who was diagnosed with attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children diagnosed that way. And when attention breaks, and that's a real, because there's a real problem. And when attention breaks down, your ability to achieve your goals and, solves your, and solve your problems breaks down, right? A, a person who's addled, who can't focus, is much less effective in the world. And my worry is, it's gonna take a lot of attention and focus to reclaim our attention and focus. And if we become more and more adult and we're on a downward trajectory, right? If you look at the evidence on this, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, we're on a significant downward trajectory. It can be, it's a bit like when you, I, I've had periods in my life when I've been obese. It can be a bit like when you put on so much weight that it's really hard to exercise and, and lose the weight, right? And my worry is if we don't act quite quickly on this question to protect ourselves and our children, we're gonna go deeper and deeper into this attention crisis. I think this is really urgent. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free plus you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. 
Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com slash yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So the, the main detriment is that in the U.S., the government doesn't care what we think uh, or what's good for us. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> I mean, that's like the fundamental problem. Um, <laughs> that's a they, pretty they, big problem. I, I will agree with you. That's a big issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't understand technology either. Uh, their resources on these issues are generally the tech companies themselves. One organization doing great work on this space politically is Common Sense Media, which is largely a group of parents who figured out that this stuff is toxic for our kids. It's run by a guy named Jim Steyer. Um, so there is, uh, and the data, by the way, is like if you ask parents, hey, would you want common sense regulation on apps uh, so that our, our kids' brains aren't fried? Shockingly, most parents are like, heck yes. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then the but the parents feel right now to completely outgun. They're largely ignored by Congress. Um, so one of the approaches I've taken, which you might appreciate, Johan, is mm. uh, this is a very American argument. Um, and it's also very me, um, which is to say, <laughs> look, look, uh, our data is ours. Um, we should not allow these companies to essentially sell and resell it for hundreds of billions of dollars for their own benefit. We should get some of that money. Uh, or we should say we can turn it off. And there is some legislation in California that inaugurated a new consumer data protection agency. Uh, and we want to replicate that nationwide. So if you are someone who lives in a state other than California, you should be yelling at your state legislators. Hey, how, why do Californians have data rights that we don't have? Mm. Um, I started something called the Data Dividend Project, trying to get people paid for their data which you can, you can, and when listening to this can look up or, or join. Um, now, uh, the short-term way to get people money is successful lawsuits against tech companies, which most people don't hear about, but Yahoo and Facebook uh, and TikTok are paying tens of millions of dollars for screwing up with people's data. And then, <laughs> you know, no, no individuals might get 60 bucks or 80 bucks, but hey, you know, it's like a, like that, that's like a beginning. Um, because my, my thought on this is that if you can get people excited about their own data rights and possibly getting paid for them, um, then you can catalyze more popular excitement around trying to beat back the tech companies. But there does need to be legislation. There does need to be a, a movement. The, the problem for us here in the U.S., Johan, is that you can have a movement and it just falls on deaf ears uh, in D.C., in Congress. Um, another thing I've done to try and make these things happen is I've started hiring lobbyists uh, on Capitol Hill who are just like, hey, you know what people would like? Child tax credit. They really love that thing. Hey, you know what people would like? Some common sense uh, restrictions on some of these social media apps so that their kids are, are more sane and healthy. Uh, so I'm working it. But you should know I completely endorse everything you're saying. And we need to go further and upend the business models of these companies because everything else is going to be a half measure. I think what you're doing is so important and I, I write about it in the book and I'm passionately in favour of it. I think there's another level at which your work can help us to solve another aspect of the attention crisis, if you're right for me to talk about that, because uh, and it's another place where you have a cameo in the book. So I think there's, the way into understanding it is to go back, whatever it is, 18, 19 months now, 
to the start of COVID. So when lots of us realized we were going to be shut away in our homes, many people, um, I remember a lot of people saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to be shut away at home for ages. I'll finally read War and Peace. I'll learn French. I'll, you know, people had these big, ambitious, attention-based projects. And no one read War and Peace and no one learned French. You, you know what we did do, Johan? We, we did watch Tiger King. Well, that was, yeah, that was, that was, um, like a horrific fever dream as far as I'm concerned. But the the Googling of terms like, how do I get my brain to focus increased by like three. <laughs> and, and and, interesting. And if you want to understand why, I think if you understand why people found it so hard to focus under COVID, it leads to one of your big and best and most brilliant issues. I interviewed a woman called Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. So I think you might know she's the Surgeon General of California. Yes, uh, ACE, the, the trauma research. Oh. Uh, she's okay. brilliant. A complete hero. Uh, I mean, one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. Yes. People who don't know Nadine, I really recommend people look look her up and look up her work. She's a, a, a an extraordinary person fighting for some of the most vulnerable people. And 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 Nadine explained to me when I interviewed her that stress this was pre-COVID, so I'm interpreting it in light of COVID. She wasn't doing that. Um, she said to me, "Look, imagine one day you're walking down the street and you're attacked by a bear out of the blue, and you survive." In the weeks and months that follow, something involuntary will happen to your attention. You will become more vigilant. So it'll be harder for you to focus on things directly in front of you like a book, because a big part of your mind will just be scanning for risk and danger. It's completely involuntary, because something attacked you out of the blue, so your mind is just like, geez, what else is gonna attack me out of the blue? Okay, now imagine you were attacked by a bear again. You might well flip into a state called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is when you cannot focus on the thing in front of you, because you are so anxious about what might just hit I, you out. I, of the I, I just want to say, if you get attacked by bears <laughs> twice, <laughs> like, yeah. then you're being careless. What's the thing Oscar Wilde said? You know, uh, once is a misfortune, twice begins to look like carelessness. I agree. It's like, like, are you like walking around bear territory with like a stake <laughs> attached to your back? <laughs> actually, actually, this reminds me of. Uh, so I'll finish this point about stress and about. Uh, vigilance in a minute, but it reminds me of one of the worst things I've ever witnessed in my life, which is I once gave a speech in Banff and I was in a place where they, um, there are bears. So they give you bear spray, you know, it's like mace you spray into, I mean, no one had ever been attacked by a bear, but just in case as you're walking around, they give you they give you bear spray. But there was someone there who didn't speak English very well and she misunderstood it. And she thought bear spray was like bug spray that you spray it on yourself. No. She sprayed it into her own face. She, it's designed to stop a bear and she sprayed it into her own face. It was horrific. Anyway, so set aside that horrific image. So if you're attacked by a bear again, you will likely go into a state called hypervigilance. And hypervigilance is where you cannot focus on the things in front of you because you are scanning for risk. And a, a, a wonderful child psychiatrist in Adelaide in Australia said to me, deep focus and attention are a really good strategy when you're safe. Sitting down and reading a book is great. You'll grow, you'll learn more. Deep focus is a very stupid strategy if you're in danger, right? You want to be looking for out for risk if you're in danger. You'd be a fool if you sat at the Battle of the Somme and, and you know, and, and read a novel, right? So we can focus best when we feel safe. One of the things, well, I think in COVID we couldn't focus because we were scared of the virus. We were scared that our lives had been profoundly upended. We didn't know what was coming next. We're in this bizarre situation. But I also think it helps us to understand another factor that's been undermining attention for a long time, which is financial insecurity. There's evidence the more financially insecure you are, the more you struggle to focus. And it's a bit like the bear attack. If you've ever been broke, and I have, and there'll be lots of people listening who have, 
one thing going wrong can screw you, right? One financial setback, one one flat tire, yeah, one, uh, one unexpected bill, yeah, totally. Exactly, as you talked about so brilliantly during the campaign. Um, so you can see that we've flipped into this mode of hypervigilance. And the reason this is so important is in Finland, as you know much better than I do, they did an experiment with a universal basic income where they chose a group of people at random and they gave them, uh, I think it was 750 US dollars a month. And there were many interesting results, all of which your listeners don't need me to tell them about because you're far more articulate on this than I am. But there was a really interesting one. I interviewed Professor Olavi Kangis, who l did that research, was in charge of monitoring the outcomes. One thing they found was a really significant improvement in people's ability to focus and pay attention. If you give people a baseline of security and stability, they are safer and they can attend more to what's in front of them. And they're, they're, they're less vigilant. There's other interesting research on this. There's a guy called Sendil Malal Nathan. Professor Malal Nathan did this, this, this research that uh, reinforces this point. They, he studied Indian sugarcane farmers. And basically because it's seasonal, at the start of the season, they're broke. They've burned through their money from the previous season. They're broke. And then at the end of the season, they are, um, they've, they've got much more money. And he tested their IQ when they were broke and when they had money. They scored 13 IQ points better when they had money than when they didn't because it just screws your intelligence and it screws your attention if you're anxious and scanning for risk. Stress, if we anything we do that reduces stress improves and enhances attention over time. Another is the increasingly invasive technology and some of the effects that it has on us. There's also a whole range of obviously 10 other factors Oh, that, that, let's let's do the inventory like oh, um, and you, we don't have to go through all 10 list style, but but some of the others are uh, nutrition, exhaustion, pollution. Uh, but yeah, just because I'm sure for most people going into this, they were like, OK, this is a tech thing, um, but it, it is much bigger than that. Well, that was what surprised me. In a way, I started to think about the tech in relation to the other causes because I started to think of the technology as like a virus, right? It would have been potent at any time, but it arrived at a moment when our collective immune system was already down because there had already been a big series of changes that were profoundly damaging our ability to focus and pay attention. I'll give you two very quick examples. We sleep much less than people used to. We sleep an hour less than people did in 1942. Children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. And when children don't sleep, they become manic. The last quarter of the book is all about children and what's happened to them. And yep. I spent a lot of time interviewing the leading experts in the world on sleep. And there were so many chilling moments on this, but one was with a guy called Dr. Charles Seisler. Have you ever spoken to him? If not, I really recommend having him on your show. Oh, I'll intro you if you want. A completely amazing man. And, and he did a series of experiments that really haunted me. So one of the things he discovered is if you stay awake for 19 hours, which really doesn't sound like much to me, your attention becomes as bad as if you had got legally drunk. If you just go for nine days, only sleeping six hours a night, your attention becomes as bad as if you were legally drunk. I'm pretty sure I did that on the presidential, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> you were all drunk, right? <laughs> exactly. The, um, and um, yeah, I can't imagine the horror of that. And, and um, he did this experiment where they combined two forms of technology. They put people in a machine that can, it scans your eyes and sees what you're looking at. And it scans your brain to see what's happening there. And what he discovered is when you're tired and you don't have to be that tired, literally whole parts of your brain have gone to sleep. 
The technical term for this is local sleep because it's local to one part of the brain. So you appear to be awake, but you are half asleep. Um, and this is because I obviously want to explore this a lot and I go through it into a lot in the book, but um, Dr. Professor Roxanne Prichard, a brilliant person at the University of Minneapolis where I interviewed her, explained to me the key, reason, key reasons why. When your brain, when you're, when you're sleeping, your brain is repairing itself. It's cleaning itself. Your, your cerebral spinal fluid channels open up. They're rinsed through with a watery fluid that carries out all the metabolic waste, which she calls like brain cell poop, that builds up throughout the day, carries it down to your liver and takes it out of your body. If you don't sleep, your brain does not repair properly. And so it's, it's literally impaired. And she explained, of course we evolved so that you could sometimes go without sleep. We wouldn't be able to raise children or escape hurricanes if we couldn't do it sometimes. But when you don't sleep, your body interprets that as an emergency. And it puts all sort of emergency measures in place. It stops you thinking about other things. It lowers your cognitive ability. It raises your heart rate. It raises your blood pressure. It makes you crave more sweet snacks. So that's one example, right? We sleep, it, Dr. Seisler said to me, even if nothing else had changed, even if all that had happened is that us and our kids sleep much less, that alone would be causing a really big attention crisis. I'll give you an example, another one of the 12, which is the way we eat. Um, and I interviewed a lot of people. There's this fascinating new movement called nutritional psychiatry of people who are studying the effects of the way we eat on our brains, depression, anxiety. I talk about this a lot in the book and I interviewed many of the leading figures. And if you want to talk to any of them, Andrew, I can introduce you because they're totally fascinating people. Um, but this has a particular effect on our attention. There's three ways in which the way we eat at the moment is, and I include myself, but you can't see this, but there's a KFC box literally behind my laptop. So I don't say this with any sense of superiority. Well, one, one um, thing I, I was going to joke about, Johan, is that at this point you've been broke, obese, and, uh, and uh, tension. <laughs> starved you know, uh, uh, and so <laughs> i'm like a i'm like a character in like a 1930s melodrama you know those black and white films starring barbara stammer i had a real low point in my life related to kfc remind me to say the other things about food in a second but in 2009 uh, on christmas eve it makes it even sadder 2009 i went to my local kfc which was in a place part of east london called brick lane and and i went in there and it was lunchtime and i said my my typical order which is so disgusting i won't even repeat it and the guy behind the counter said, oh, Johan, I'm really glad you're here. Wait a minute. And I was like, all right. And he went off behind where they fry the chicken. And he came back with all the other people who were on duty that day. And they'd got a massive Christmas card in which they'd written to our best customer. And everyone who worked there had written me like personal messages. And one of the reasons my heart sank is I thought, this isn't even the fried chicken shop I come to the most. <laughs> so this is like my <laughs> second favorite. <laughs> and I, ne I never went back but because I was so horrified. But like two years later, I bumped into that guy in the street and he said, oh, Johan, you never came back. We just assumed you died of a heart attack. I was like, oh my God, what's happening? Anyway, so the, the, this diet, this standard Western diet that most of us eat, um, it affects our ability to focus and pay attention profoundly in three ways. Um, the first is, Let's say for breakfast you have, I don't know, white white bread or you have Frosties or whatever it might be. Pop-Tarts. Exactly, Pop-Tarts. Oh, oh even the words Pop-Tarts has given me such an intense craving, I've got to tell you, but I'm going to fight through it. And um, what that does, and Pop-Tarts in particular actually, is they, and I learned this from Dale Pinnock, who's one of the leading nutritionists in Britain, 
is it releases a huge amount of energy really quickly. So you feel great, you feel like you've woken up. But then an hour later, your energy, you're sitting at your desk or your child is sitting at their school desk and your energy will just crash, it will slump and you'll experience brain fog where you just can't get your head to work properly until you have another sugary carby snack. And the way, so at the moment, the Western diet puts us on a kind of constant roller coaster of mental energy spikes and mental energy crashes. And we're often in a state of brain fog. The way Dale Pinnock put it to me is, it's like we're putting rocket fuel into a mini, right? One of those little British cars from the 70s. It'll go really fast for five minutes and then it'll just stop. But when you eat a diet that releases energy steadily throughout the day, which is of course what humans evolved doing, your energy will be much easier to apply. There are two other quick ways in which it affects your ability to pay attention the way we eat. One is that for your brain to develop and function fully, you need certain nutrients. And our diet is chronically lacking many of those nutrients. Um, there was a really interesting study in the Netherlands where they got a bunch of kids. I think it was uh, 130 kids and they split them into two groups. And one was assigned to basically cut out the shit we eat and just eat healthy stuff. And the other was you know, carried on eating the kind of standard diet. And the group that shifted to the healthy diet, that 70% um, of them had an improvement in their attention and the average improvement was 50%, which is remarkable. Um, so that's, that's one element. We're not getting the things we need for our brains to develop. The other is it's even more disturbing, which is the food we, and particularly our children eat, contains chemicals that act on us like drugs. There was a study in Britain in Southampton in 2007. They took 297 kids and they split them into two groups. One group was given just water to drink and the other group was given a cocktail, um, not an alcoholic cocktail, so that would be weird, a cocktail of uh, chemicals basically that are in the kind of food that we give our kids all the time. Stuff from the supermarket, M&Ms, candies. And the kids given the cocktail of chemicals were significantly more likely to become manic, to become, uh, to act up, to have attention problems. So you can see across the board, the way we're eating is damaging. And again, it's tempting to think of that in an individualistic way, you know, that, oh, this is just a personal failing. And of, and of course, there are things we can do as individuals. No, no, no. I mean, they, they, again, they're these billion dollar companies that are, are just like, hey, like I can make a bit more money. Uh, my food's a little bit more addictive. Uh, exactly. It's a little bit a little bit cheaper. It stays on the shelf longer. And we're locked in that machinery. You know, more 18 month old children know what the McDonald's M means than know their own last name. Yeah, Johan, one one of the things that blows my mind as a parent. Well, first, my kids love McDonald's. Um, but but second, things are the same price now that they were when I was growing up. And I was like, wow, like how the heck do they still make this stuff happen for, <laughs> for so little? You go in there and like like you could get you know, a happy meal for like a few bucks, like the, the whole thing. It's, uh, it's wild. I grew up on that stuff too. Uh, and if you were financially struggling, be like a million times easier to get your kids a meal at one of these fast food places than try and get some fresh produce, especially because there, there are food deserts all over uh, the country in terms of fresh food. If you don't have money, McDonald's is much easier, but also um, if you're stressed, you, you crave that food much more. It and does relieve tired, stress in a strangely way. Yeah. That's why they call it comfort food. Exactly. And if you're tired, you crave that food more. And that's something that's true of so many of the factors that I write about in, in Stolen Focus. Of these 12 factors, they all interact, right? They all yeah. interact in They reinforce ways. each other. Exactly. Uh, so it, it's like we create a kind of disastrous spiral um, that goes downward and downward and downward. 
Um, but, and this is why, I, I re, one of the reasons I really admire you, Andrew, it's very easy when there are people living in drainage tunnels beneath Caesar's Palace, when there are people who have diabetes who don't get insulin in the United States, when there are, when we can't agree on the most basic things, it's very tempting to get into a mode of fatalism, right? Like I wrote a book about addiction uh, called Chasing the Scream and the War on Drugs because we had addiction in my family. And in one of the things I explain in the book is well, I explain what causes addiction, but also I explain the countries that solved addiction crises, that had enormous addiction crises and solved them. Like, and I know you've talked about this, Portugal, where they decriminalized all drugs and took all the money they used to spend on shaming people, punishing them and putting them in prison. And they spent it all on helping them. And they went from having the worst drug problem in the European Union to being having the lowest drug problem in the European Union and an enormous fall in overdose deaths. And I would go around the United States and I would talk about that. And people, even you know, quite conservative people would say, when they heard the argument and they listened to the stories I present in the book and they see the scientific evidence from Portugal, they'd say, you're absolutely right. And it will never happen here. There is a deep fatalism. And one of the things I love about you is our job is to be hope mongers. Um, and one of the reasons I'm hopeful, when people say, oh, let's think back about tech, right? Very often people will say to me, and people have been saying to me as I talk about the book, um, yeah, you know, you're right about these factors. You're right about everything, be- Johan. <laughs> I wish everywhere I go, people just say, yeah, and you're right about everything. Uh, sadly not. I mean, you're right about right. this, that's for sure. And But then and they say, hey, this will never actually get it addressed. Will never happen. And when I say that, I think about some specific people, but I'll, uh, and I'm happy to talk about plenty of them, but I'll just tell you two people very close to me. I would urge people to think about their own families. I think about my grandmothers. So my grandmothers were the age I am now. I'm 43 in a few days. Um, they were the age I am now in 1963. One of them was a working class woman in a Scottish tenement, a kind of very poor, like housing, like a, like a housing project. And one of them was a Swiss peasant woman living in a wooden hut on the side of a mountain in Switzerland. Both my grandmothers left school when they were 13 because when the men in their family stayed on longer, because no one gave a shit about girls learning anything. My Swiss grandmother was an, brilliant at drawing and painting. They told her to shut up and get into the kitchen and put it away. Um, my grandmothers, when they were the age I am now, they were not allowed to have bank accounts because they were married women in their own name. They were not allowed, my Swiss grandmother wasn't allowed to vote. It was legal for their husbands to rape them as it was legal everywhere in the world for men to rape their wives. It was in practice legal for men to beat the shit out of their wives because there was not one domestic violence refuge anywhere in the world. Men controlled literally everything. There was not a company, not a country, uh, uh, not a police force that was controlled by women. And there never had been, apart from a few hereditary monarchs, right? And I think about how enormous the power structure that faced them was and how it profoundly thwarted their lives, right? My grandmothers were incredible people. They were good, kind, intelligent people, and they never got to have the lives they should have had. And then I think about my niece, who's 17, who sadly never knew my grandmother, either of my grandmothers. But my niece loves to draw. And when my niece loved to draw, we didn't say shut up and get into the kitchen. We said, hey, let's look up art schools. Now, I do not want to underestimate how much further we've got to go, how deep the fight against misogyny is. I'm very conscious of how irritating it is for a man to mansplain this. But we have led to an astonishing transformation. There has been an astonishing transformation as a result of the feminist movement. And when, when people say to me, oh, we'll never, we'll never win against these forces, I always say to them, however powerful big tech is, however powerful the food industry is, however powerful 
all these other forces that I write about in Stolen Focus are, they ain't a hundredth as powerful as men were in 1963, right? Men controlled everything, literally everything, right? And always had done. So there are incredible changes that are possible when we organize exactly in the way you're doing and the way so many other people are doing and we fight back. And a big part of our job is explaining to people they want you to feel powerless and without agency. You are incredibly powerful. The people I've got to know all over the world who created it, I'll give you one other example. When I get pessimistic, and there are days when I feel pessimistic, I think a lot about someone I'm sure most of your listeners know about, a good friend of mine named Andrew Sullivan. So in 1994, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive. It was the height of the AIDS crisis. His best friend, Patrick, had just died of AIDS. As far as he knew, there was no hope in sight. He thought he had a couple of years to live. So Andrew quit his job, he was the editor of the New Republic, and he went to Provincetown to die. And he decided <clears throat> that before he died, he was gonna do one last thing. He was gonna write a book about a crazy utopian idea that no one had ever written a book about before. And he thought, well, I'll never live to see this happen. No one alive today will ever live to see this happen. But maybe somewhere down the line, someone will pick this up. The idea he wrote the first book about was gay marriage, an amazing book called Virtually Normal. When I get pessimistic, I try to imagine going back in time to Provincetown in, in, in 2004 and saying to Andrew, okay, Andrew, you're not gonna believe me, but whatever it is, 26 years from now, A, you'll be alive, that would have blown his mind. B, you'll be married to a man, that would have been inconceivable to him. And C, I'll be with you when the Supreme Court of the United States quotes from this book you're writing now, when it makes it mandatory for every state in the United States to introduce gay marriage. And the next day you'll be invited to a White House lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag to have dinner with the president to celebrate what you and so many other people have achieved. Oh, and by the way, that president, he's gonna be black, right? Every aspect of that would have sounded like preposterous science fiction. Let me saying to you, Sir Andrew, 26 years from now, a trans president is gonna invite us to smoke crack with her in the Oval Office, right? It would have said, not that we want that. Oh, I mean, the and, and they'll be stuff. quoting from Stolen Focus as they <laughs> write- They'll be quoting you, they'll be quoting you. As they write uh, legislation to completely change the business model. I, I, I will <laughs> say, I agree with you that we probably don't have that much time, uh, that if we're going to, to make this stuff happen, um, it's gonna be a little bit sooner, but continue. You know, I, we, I understand that, that yeah, that this, uh, this is an illustration that incredible things are possible that might be beyond the imagination of most people. And I completely agree with you that there is a massive need for this movement. And my thinking on it is this. We are setting our kids up to fail for a host of reasons. Uh, but one of them is that they're anxious, they're depressed, uh, their minds are getting strip mined, they're not able to focus and pay attention. Uh, and in that environment, it's going to be very difficult for them to have the kind of lives that we want for them. And so if we want to turn that around, we have to get back our data, our minds, our autonomy, our humanity, our agency, uh, and imagining that individuals can somehow protect themselves from billion and trillion dollar corporations uh, is ridiculous. Uh, what Roger McNamee said is that in the old days when they did industrial production, you just dumped the chemicals in the back. And then at some point, someone realized, you know what? Those chemicals end up seeping into the river and then end up poisoning people. You should probably have some rules around, <laughs> around, around disposing of them. Uh, you know, the same thing's happening right now with these tech companies and social media apps and the rest of it. It's like, okay, 
Uh, we get it that these things uh, are part of our lives, but there's no reason why we have to accept the equivalent of the chemical spill and say, well, uh, you know, like, I, I guess now our kids are going to be uh, anxious and, and not able to concentrate at all. to now, almost all of the debate has been focused upon individual changes. And I'm passionately in favor of individual changes. They this is one reason I love your book, Johan, is that you call it like it is. It's like, look, like expecting us to do this individually is bullshit. Yeah. I mean, look, there are things you can do and it'll, it might help you 20%. I'd say the changes I've made, which are really significant and I talk about in the book, have boosted personally my attention by about 20%. That's def Even if I did nothing else, that would be worth doing. But I mean, it's bullshit in the sense of it's Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention problems, you know, he just said to me, look, if you see bodies coming down the river, you can fish the bodies out the river. That's worth doing. But you've got to go up river to see why the bodies are coming down in the first place. And in the same way, we've got to figure out why this is happening. And the science is very clear on this, right? It, yeah. it was one of the things that was striking to me, the evidence for how this is degrading our attention and focus. And it comes back to that thing, exactly what you're saying about efficacy. Remember Dr. James Williams, the attention, amazing attention expert, said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The entire World Wide Web has existed for less than 10,000 days. We can change these things if we want to. But I think you just said something before, Andrew, that was so important as well about children, because there's there's been an extraordinary rise in children struggling to focus and pay attention. And I don't think it's a coincidence, and this is very relevant to the current COVID debate as well, I don't think it's a coincidence that this extraordinary explosion in children's attention problems coincided with a profound transformation in the nature of childhood itself. And I tell this in the book partly through the story of an incredible woman called Lenore Skenazi. Um, so Lenore, like everyone else who grew up in the 60s, Lenore, I mean, this will seem almost unbelievable to people who, who, who hear it now. So Lenore grew up in a suburb of Chicago, normal suburb. When she was five, from when she was five years old, she would walk out the house on her own and she would walk to school, which was 15 minutes away on her own. I mean, she would bump into the other kids on the way. She would be helped across the road when she got to the school by a 10 year old boy whose job was to help the five year olds across the street. And then when school ended, she would leave on her own wander around the neighborhood with her friends and go home by six o'clock when she was hungry, right? That was what childhood was like for almost all humans, for almost all of our history. Children just went off, they ran around, they played with each other, and then they came home. And um, by the time Lenore became a parent, she was living in Queens in the 90s. By then, children never played outside except without, without adults looking after them. Uh, you were expected to walk your child to school and wait and make sure the child walked through the door and you were expected to be there to pick them up like a package at the end of the day. By 2003, only 10% of American children ever played outside their home without adult supervision. And I think, if I remember rightly, even the ones that did, the average was something like 10 minutes a week, right? So basically nothing, right? Childhood began to happen entirely behind closed doors, which was unprecedented in human history, never been done. And there's lots of evidence, if you look at the component parts of that, that that damages attention. So let's look at, I go through lots of them, but let's look at a really no shit Sherlock one. Um, the evidence is very clear. Children who exercise and run around can focus much better than children who don't. In fact, the single, one of the single best treatments for children with attention problems is to let them go and run around, right? 
And yet we have physically prevented children from running around. And the reason Lenore is one of the heroes of the book and a completely amazing human being is Lenore realized, look, if you face that problem and you're a parent, you can't be the only parent sending your child out that you just seem like a mad person and the child gets frightened. So she set up, she runs, it already existed before her actually, but she, she began to run an amazing organization. I really recommend everyone looks up called letgrow.org, which is about persuading entire communities, entire schools, entire groups of parents to restore childhood. Let our children grow. And I can't, Andrew, I can't tell you how moving it was to go and look at these programs. So I'll give you an example. I went to with Lenore to their program in Long Island. And we went to two schools. We went to a place called Roanoke Elementary, and we met a group of nine-year-olds. And then we went to a, a kind of, um, and that was in quite a poor neighborhood. Then we went to a kind of fancier neighborhood and we spoke to teenagers. And I'll give you an example of one of the kids. There was this boy there. He was a 14-year-old boy. And he was a big, strapping, strong 14-year-old boy. And until this program had begun nine months before, his parents had never let him out of his house unsupervised. Never. They didn't even let him go for a run around the block, right? And and I'll never forget the phrase he used. He said, they wouldn't let me out because they were worried about, the phrase he used was, all these kidnappings. Now, this is a part of Long Island where the French bakery is across the street from the olive oil store. Yeah, statistically, the odds of something like that happening to a kid so low. And I got to say, man, like uh, I, I see even the cartoon programming that our kids are exposed to and it's like stranger danger. It's like, and it was like, like it, it makes it seem like the world is filled with deadly threats. And I'm just like, this is not great training. This young man had had a level of fear that would have been appropriate if he had lived in Medellin at the height of Pablo Escobar's terror, right? When in fact, his chances of being kidnapped are, uh, his chances of being hit by lightning are three times greater than his chance of being kidnapped. But then this program began and he began to play outdoors with his friends. And eventually what happened is they went to the woods and they built a fort together and they left their phones at home and they went to this fort and they talked and they played and they ran around. And this boy describing this with his friends, it was like watching someone come to life. And after he left, Lenore said, you know, think about all of human history, for almost all of human history, people had to go out, they had to hunt, they had to seek, they had to build. And then in one generation, we took all of that away from children. And that boy, the minute he was set free, went with his friends into the woods and built a fort. And there is something deep in human nature. Children want to roam. And the only place where our children get to roam around and get to be free is in video games. I went to this place called um, Restart Washington, which is... Um, the first ever internet rehab center in the world. It's outside Spokane in Washington. I remember when I, <laughs> when I arrived there, it's like a clearing in the woods. The first thing I did absolutely instinctively when I arrived was look at my phone and feel really irritated. I couldn't get any reception. And then I was like, oh, wait, you're in the right place. The rehab center for internet addiction. Um, but I remember I spent a lot of time there speaking to these young men and they get all kinds of people there, but they disproportionately get young men who become obsessed with multiplayer online role-playing games. Like when I was there, it was World of Warcraft, but I'm guessing now it would be Fortnite. And it was so interesting talking to these young men. Some of them also became obsessed with porn. And it, and it, it was so interesting because I, I realized that afterwards talking to Dr. Cash, who runs the clinic, that they're getting something out of these games. And Dr. Cash said to me, you've got to ask yourself what they're getting. They're getting the things they used to get from the culture, but they no longer get. They're getting a sense that someone sees them. They're getting a sense that they're physically roaming around and exploring. And um, they're getting a sense they're good at something. A big part of the book is I talk about we have a school system that makes people feel incompetent, right? That, that is 
trains them for meaningless tasks, which makes ruins your attention, and makes, in particular, boys feel really incompetent, like they're not good at anything. And so how can we be surprised our kids are obsessed with playing video games if the only way they get to roam around and explore- It's a world anything? of achievement and status and relationships uh, and identity. And then, you know, the real world is not providing those things in the same way. Exactly, I think you put it better than I could. I think that's exactly true. And so there are all sorts of things I think we need. If we're going to have a movement to rebuild attention, there are many goals we could have. And I, I propose, you know, about 15 possible ones we could think of. But for me, the top of the list would be ban this business model, surveillance capitalism, restore childhood. Every school should have a let grow program. Uh, and we need to really deeply restore childhood. And I think, again, these things cut across left and right. Um, you know, I think I've written the only books that have ever been praised by uh, Noam Chomsky, Hillary Clinton and Tucker Carlson. Um, and the, the third I would say is move to a four day week because I went. To yes, we love the four day work week. <laughs> I know, there's a big overlap between our interests here, but it was fascinating because I went to a place in Australia. This is another person who'd be great for your podcast, the guy who did this. I, I, sorry, not in Australia, in New Zealand. Oh. People in Australia will be very angry at New Zealanders. Sorry. It's like when you confuse Canadians for Americans. I went to New Zealand um, to, in, to, to see an incredible experiment that had been done in this. There was a guy called Andrew Barnes who'd had an experience of just extremely overworking all throughout his 20s and 30s, being exhausted. He, he'd done that in Britain. He left and went and became very successful in New Zealand and Australia. And then he was running a, a very successful business called Perpetual Guardian that um, runs wills and trusts. And he just wondered if he, he read a load of research that showed that the average worker only focuses on their work for about two hours a day and the rest of the time they're just sort of not in in the zone right and he thought well one of the reasons might be that they're exhausted people are chronically overworking in our culture so he decided to do an experiment he just announced that he was moving his entire company from a five-day week to a four-day week for the same amount of money when he announced it his head of hr literally fell over um, but they did it. And I went and interviewed everyone who worked in their offices in a town in Rotorua, which is in New Zealand. Um, it's a very nice town, but it smells weirdly of farts because it's got they've got some issue with sulfur. Anyway, very nice place otherwise. And um, and it was fascinating. So what they had discovered, and this was monitored by academics at the um, the business school in Auckland, is they achieved more in four days than they did in five. And this has happened in so many places where they've done experiments with four day weeks. And at first, when I learned that, it felt almost too good to be true. But then there was a, I went to interview Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer in Stanford, who's an expert on organizational behavior. And he said to me, look, if you want to understand why it works, it's not complicated. Ask any sports fan, do you want your team to walk onto the pitch exhausted, burned out, or do you want them to walk on the pitch refreshed, renewed, having rested, having slept well? It's not a difficult choice, right? So I would argue, although there's many other potential things we could fight for, and I can talk about loads of other big social reforms that we could do. And of course, I talk about lots of individual things people can do. I think if we fought for those three things, first thing I think those three things appeal to pretty much everyone. It'd be an odd person who didn't find those things appealing. Secondly, I think in the medium term, they are achievable. And thirdly, I think they'll begin to give us the space to get our focus back where we could then begin to look at some of the other causes, uh, some of the other 12 causes that I'm talking about. Does that ring true to you, Andrew? I enthusiastically endorse your top three. Change the business model of these tech companies. 
Let's give kids their childhood back. And uh, let's go to a four-day work week. Amen. Uh, and so uh, so I, I'm completely on board. The forward party is completely on board with those goals. They'll be very popular. Uh, and I am completely on board with everyone picking up your book because it's an important oh. book. I hope it spurs a revolution. Stolen focus, why you can't pay attention and how you can think more deeply. There's so much wisdom in this book, Johan. There's a lot of humanity oh. They're, they're, you know, you're very thorough. So it, it's got all of the backup in terms of the experts and the science. Um, but but there is a heart behind it. Um, and, and I think what, what you're articulating really is that, you know, we're, we're losing our sense of self. Um, and we have to take it back. And you're a champion of humanity for this. I hope this book is a worldwide bestseller. Everyone listening to this should buy the book. Uh, and then equally importantly, let's do something about it. Let's take back our own minds uh, and help accomplish some of these goals that Johan's setting out. Really, I'm I'm so thrilled to be having this conversation with you. Oh. Uh, and uh, one, one other thing is that I feel like you're such a fount that we could do this again and just talk oh. about a, a totally different set of things. And, and you're already working on <laughs> like other things. You've got like an incredibly uh, prolific mind, my friend. Um, oh. But yeah, I, I'm a thousand percent on board with those three goals. Oh, oh, thanks, Andrew. You're doing such important work and you're in the book because I really admire the work you're doing. And um, I meant to say, my publishers tase me if I don't say this. Um, anyone, people can listen for free on the website to interviews with loads of the experts, with all of the experts we've talked about. If they go to stolenfocusbook.com and they can also see there where to get the audio book, the ebook, or the physical book. You're meant to say you can buy it in all good bookshops, but I also want to say you can buy it in shitty bookshops as well. It's not like, it's not like a bar where like only the good bookstops stock it. But um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I got in trouble at the end of a, a um, interview a while back because at the end of it, they said to me, you know, what's your social media? They said, what's your, they said, what's your, your Twitter? And I said it, even though I don't look at it very much. I, my assistant does, uh, I tell my assistant what to do, what to tweet. Uh, and they said, what's your Facebook? What's your Instagram? And then they said to me, what's your Snapchat? And I said, I am a 43 year old man the only 43-year-old men on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles, right? Like, why are they there? What's going on? And I said, the, um, the, you know that TV show, To Catch a Predator? I said, the yes. next season of To Catch a Predator should literally be, they go up to adult men in the street and say, what is your Snapchat handle? And if they have an answer, just immediately arrest them, right? Anyway, the guy who was interviewing me didn't laugh. I later looked him up and he's, uh, he's older than 40 and has a very substantial Snapchat presence. And I was like, oh dear, I've accidentally called him a pedophile. So I'm glad I got through this interview without accidentally horribly insulting you because I'm a big fan of yours. So hooray. It, uh, you made it. Stolenfocusbook.com uh, sounds like a, an awesome resource and a lot of my fans love audiobooks and audio clips so go to stolenfocusbook.com you can hear the interviews that johan conducted for this book or just buy the book the old-fashioned way uh but i i'm a huge admirer of this man and his work and we should support him in any way we can buying a book's the least we can do am i right people i'm right <laughs> brilliant cheers